0: This podcast is designed for you to discover more about who you are, to challenge your old adopted beliefs, and to expand your awareness of what's really possible. I'm Adam Esco, and this is The Unspoken Agreements. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Unspoken Agreements podcast. I'm your host, Adam Esco. Before I get to this week's amazing guest, Nafisa Shireen, I'm going to share a bit about myself for those of you who don't know me. I am a life coach and a business strategist, and I get to help second-generation family business owners who their work has become, unfortunately, the greatest source of their stress and unfulfillment in their life. This is something that I had to go through personally. And so I feel an absolute... uh, alignment with working with these people. Um, they want more for themselves. They, they don't want to feel this way. They want to do what it is that they love to do. They want to uh, have the mindset and the emotional fortitude and resilience so that they can decide and create their dream business and live with the joy and freedom and fulfillment that uh, gives them the energy to do so. So if this is something that speaks to you, you can check me out at www.adamesco.com. Also give a shout out to Truthwork Media, the production team here, who's been awesome to work with. Michael has been so fantastic. Uh, if you're someone that wants to look into podcasting, look into uh, clipping content, uh, they have I could not give them a higher praise. They've been great. Check them out, Truthwork Media. Okay, so now I want to share with you Nafisa Shireen, who is a master coach. Um, and she also works with geldings, with horses, to help provide transformation and healing for people and help people uh, boost their business and get just personal transformation from it. You're going to hear so much from Nafisa. She is uh, brilliant, she is passionate, um, she is uh, got a great energy. And she shares her upbringing and her history with the, uh, I, I keep wanting to say church, but as growing up in a family in a community of Jehovah's Witnesses. And she talks about her personal transformation, how she started to really question and challenge some of the beliefs that she had as a child. Um, and she's talked about some of the struggles that's come along with that. She shares stories along the way. She shares things that have been hard for her. Um, And she talks openly of how she's dealt with that. Um, And so it's been a real pleasure to have someone who uh, can speak so openly about something that is ingrained and conditioned into you that you are absolutely, whatever you do, do not speak against uh, the Jehovah's Witness faith Um, and so organization. So I just want to give her a commenter on that, and you're going to hear that during this conversation. So without further ado, enjoy Nafisa Shireen. All right, Nafisa, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Adam. I'm excited to dive into this.
0: I'm really, really excited. Um, I'm kind of geeking out over here. (laughs) I don't, (laughs) so you don't probably know this. Maybe I shared this with you, but the first time I saw you was on stage. You were on stage. Uh, sharing about yourself at the Art of Success Summit that David Naga holds. And I and I, I was looking up there, and there were some just amazing, amazing people that you were on stage with. Um, yeah, you know, pretty incredible show.
1: group that David wow. attracts, yeah.
0: Yeah, and some of which who have been on this podcast, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it'll be really great. But what, there's two things that you shared that I was like, two things that I noticed about you that day that really stuck out and made me want to like connect with you and get to know you a little bit better. One was, which I'm hoping to talk about in our conversation, is your experience with coaching and horse and and horses, the work that you do. Mm -hmm. And and, and the way you were starting to describe that that day, I was like, wow, she, this is just so, this is watching someone embodying what it is that they do. Um, And it was really cool. Yeah. That means a lot to
1: hear that feedback (laughs) because it's very personal work. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so what we're really going to start with, so this idea, the the topic of our, of this podcast is the unspoken agreements. And I I don't think there's, this is why I'm geeking out to talk to you so much because you grew up in a Jehovah's Witness household. Yes. Um, And there are, there are things that hopefully we'll, will be, sh- you'll be sharing in this conversation, which, um, gives you an idea of, of the upbringing you had, the belief systems, the values, and I am going to be so fascinated to hear how you, what that was like for you and, and then how you live your life now. So, without revealing too much, uh, I think a great place to start would be if you could just paint us a picture of what it was like for you to grow up in your home, in your faith, what was that like for you?
1: So because I was born into a Jehovah's Witness upbringing and my mother, my mother actually, um, and this is, this is a twist in the story that I don't think a lot of people don't know. Um, my mother became a Jehovah's Witness in Pakistan. <laughs> so, um, you know, which is a predominantly Muslim country. And so you can just imagine um, the chances of that actually happening are incredible. Um, But her family was called on by the local missionaries that were there, and then they eventually became Jehovah's Witnesses, and she emigrated to Canada. And she met my dad, who had, he was from Germany, but he got called on by, as he tells the story, and I don't know if it's true or not, but as he tells the story, the, the girls that came to his door were really pretty, and so he was trying to get their attention, and he ended up studying with him and converting, but they met here in Canada. So um, for me, that was that was just what I knew. Like, I, I didn't know anything else, right, that this is what you did. And um, we grew up, my parents were pretty good about making sure we had lots of uh, friends and stuff within the congregation but the thing about being a jehovah's witness is and and a lot of this i didn't really quite realize till uh this past year i mean i'm i turned 49 and a lot of things sort of came to the the forefront because i didn't realize that they they are actually a cult and i didn't know that growing up i just sort of faded away um so growing up it was you know no christmas no birthdays we went to meetings uh, three times a week they have they have five meetings i say but each but two of the meetings would have two of the days that you would go would have two different topics So they they would call each of those like each half would be a different meeting um we were expected to do the preaching work we were expected to have family bible study personal bible study i mean it's you know when, when i'm saying it now it it's quite shocking like wow this is just a lot of indoctrination um but at the time we thought that was what our spiritual practices needed to be um and my mother and father deferred a lot to the elders of the congregation. You know, those were kind of our authority figures and um, also to the, the the governing body of Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, when I was growing up, the, the language to be used was society uh, and the elders. Now they talk a lot more about the governing body because they're a lot more forward um, publicly than they were when I was growing up. And so I didn't really know anything different. You know, we had congregation get togethers, we had annual corn roasts, three-legged races. Um, it was just all I knew, but I was different. I didn't have friends outside of that, um, that group you know we went to school but we didn't stand for the national anthem we weren't allowed to participate in um, like school council voting or anything like that because we weren't allowed to vote um, so we were always a bit of an outsider you didn't go to school dances you know we just our focus was constantly to uh, go to these meetings and we just hung out with other Jehovah's Witnesses all the time that was all I knew and it wasn't bad wasn't good it was just all I knew
0: yeah, siblings. Do you have any siblings?
1: Yeah, I have uh, one sister and one brother.
0: Okay, and yeah, you talked about uh, you know having fr- having friends within the organization, um, but in school, when is it that you started to realize that there was that you that you were the outsider? Do you remember when that came about in your awareness?
1: Boy, I mean, you're kind of. I mean, you're as Jehovah's Witnesses, it's very much. Um, us and the world right if they weren't a jehovah's witness they were a worldly person so and i'm just trying to think like it's not so much that i was the outsider but everyone else was going to (laughs) die right god was going to punish everybody who wasn't a jehovah's witness at at armageddon when it comes which they're still preaching is coming any day now Um, and so everybody else was going to die and they weren't good people and they were you know, mentally diseased, or they were worldly, or they were dangerous, or they were bad associations. So, didn't really notice it. I think until I, I probably got to high school, and um, I remember I was in class one day, and something, something came up. Whether it was Halloween or Mother's Day or some some holiday that we just didn't celebrate, and and I gave the usual, well, no, I don't do that because I'm one of Jehovah's witnesses. And somebody said, you're what? And she started calling people all around and, you know, started laughing and making fun of me. Fun of me. And I, and that was the first time I realized like that, oh, that, that I was the different one, not them. Um, but, you know, we were just so used to it. Like that was just, we were taught that we were going to be persecuted or that the world wouldn't like us, or they would try to drag us into their you know, how they think. So it was just all very normal. And I know that sounds really unnormal right now, but I didn't, I didn't know anything else. Right. And so we didn't date, we didn't, um, you know, unless you're we getting married <laughs> and uh, they, 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 they don't baptize babies because they feel that, you know, uh, you need to make your own choices to, what how you're going to serve god or who you're going to serve so on the surface that sounds really good but they do encourage children to make those decisions and get baptized and when you do get baptized as a jehovah's witness part of the vows you make at the the point of baptism is a is a vow to the actual organization which you don't realize when you're making it because you think you're dedicating your life to god um but if you actually hear the vows or read the vows now, it's like, oh, yeah, I was committing to this organization. And so from that point on, I mean, they they pretty much control your life, because if you don't agree with them, if you think differently, if you question any of the teachings, you can then be considered, quote, apostate, which they view as people who are mentally diseased and dangerous. There's, there's no sin worse than apostasy. So you, you don't want that, um, because then you can be what they call disfellowshipped and shunned and you can be disfellowshipped and shunned for a lot less quote worse sins whether that's you know smoking or having sex before marriage uh, or anything like that but then you still have hope to repent and come back but the moment you become what they call apostate you will never be forgiven by God so once you get baptized you're in that and um yeah you don't uh you don't make decisions it's a high control thought control um and, and i'm sorry like I'm, I'm stumbling a bit of my words here because just all these revelations that that came forward for me have all been kind of recent so i'm still processing that at 49 um but yeah i mean it was we were told like you don't read apostate material you don't read um anything if you want to study anything you only study there. so if you look at steve hassan who's who has written that book on combating uh, cult mind control like with their bite model where they actually control your information intake. Um, and, and, you know, they say things like, well, we've done all the research. This is spiritual information. Why would you study anything else? And And it just makes so much sense when you're doing that. But at the same time, they say, you know, you can't just worship God blindly. You have to do your studying and research, but only research ours. I know that sounds crazy, right? Like that sounds insane. Well, how can you do actual research if you're only researching their materials? But when you're in it, it makes total sense.
0: If from the get-go you were told that that was the right thing to do, that's what God wanted you, that's the good what good people do, you wouldn't challenge it, right? Would you challenge it? That's all, you, you don't have a, the ability to, uh, unless you get really conscious or start to challenge that somehow.
1: But you don't, right? Because that fear of committing the unforgivable sin is pretty, is pretty strong. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I I was born into it, so my subconscious mind from like zero to seven had. I mean, I still have it there, right? So, you know, you you, it's just programmed in you. And and I was it last fall. Somebody had told me a few years ago to read a book called uh, Crisis of Conscious by Raymond Franz, and he used to be one of the governing body members, so he had an inside look at what actually happened in New York at their meetings, how they operated, how they came up with doctrine, how they treated people. And he ended up being uh, disfellowshipped because he had dinner with somebody who was, quote, disfellowshipped. And it was quite a it's quite an interesting book. And I had somebody tell me that I should, you know, read that. And um, I'd been out for like 10 years and I still couldn't bring myself to read it because that fear was just so real. Right. Of course, when I read the book, it wasn't sensationalized. It sounded like a very sad person writing a memoir and he, there was no reason to think that it was fake or anything. It, it there was absolutely no sensationalism in it. It was just it was actually quite a bit of a dry read. Um if, for anybody who hasn't been a Jehovah's Witness, it would be an incredibly dry read, but for those of us who've been in it, it's, it it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> because of of, of what emotions uh, there. Yeah, like wow, wow, wow and and starting to realize that, you know, some of the the doctrine how they came up with it and how they realized it wasn't working anymore, and how they would try to change the narrative because they made a mistake on the doctrine. And well, what they tell the 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 pub- they call them publishers, not parishioners. The publishers, because they're publishing the news of the kingdom. But I mean, the Watchtower Society is a printing company, so that makes sense that people are publishers. Is that it's new light, and um, and they would change things quite a bit, saying, well, it's new light from God, and you know, the critical thinking. Says to me now, but wouldn't back then. Is okay. So, how can a God who cannot lie allow you to believe something that's not true until He gives you more new light that's also not true? That He's going to change with other new light. Like, think about
0: that. <laughs> Just, can you can you give an example about that? Help me come in in your world with that.
1: Um. So. So, for instance, one of the things that uh, they believe, and it's a key part of their doctrine, because they they are a doomsday cult, they they're preaching that the world is ending, um, that they they believe that God's kingdom was established on earth by Jesus in 1914, and they there's a whole lot of mental gymnastics that you have to get through in different Bible verses and chronology and counting and metaphors to, to get to that. But it it made sense to me at one point. Side note: the the date. That they use to do the counting based on that has actually been disproven by historical records like there was the fall of the fall of israel or fall of jerusalem i, I can't remember but um, that's actually been disproved by historical records but they don't talk about that <laughs> um but anyway so so they're still sticking to that date and so that was a start and then they were teaching that the generation that saw the start of these things so that s- saw the start of 1914 is also the generation that's going to see god's kingdom be reestablished on Earth, like paradise. Everybody, Armageddon comes. Everyone who's a non-believer dies. Um, the dead get resurrected back to life. A certain number go to heaven. Um, so that's what we were taught. Like it's coming, it's coming. Well, you know, 1914 was 106 years ago. So that generation's dead, <laughs> right? Um, they've changed the the position on on what that what the the generation means several times now they haven't changed the date because the date is also tied into them claiming that they have the authority as, as uh, christ's appointed master so if they change that date then they they lose their authority to, to govern people so they've been changing what the, the word generation means and now they're talking about it well evidently they meant an overlapping generation and there's been a few explanations in between and for people who aren't familiar with it, I won't go into the details because it's kind of boring, but this is key doctrine is the point, right? The key doctrine and they uh, of of what God's going to do and he keeps giving new light. Well, where where's the logic in this? OK, maybe you didn't quite understand it, but if God couldn't lie, wouldn't the next new light he give you not be false? Like, why would he keep giving you false new light? Right. So those are examples of just not using critical thinking skills. And if you ask questions, I mean, I, I've i never been um, disfellowshipped from this organization, and I have not been labeled an apostate, even though I probably am. So if anybody were to actually hear this, um, Podcast. I'm taking a chance now that I get a, I get a judicial knock on my door. Um, but I, I don't subscribe to there. I don't subscribe to their authority system. So I would just tell them to leave.
0: <laughs> Nafisa, here's yeah. what I'm curious about. You, you talked about something that was that was interesting, which is um, this idea of committing the unforgiving sin. Um, wh- what I, what I'm curious about is at what point as you're kind of going through life, um, do you start? Noticing that you're living with this this fear of of either the fellowship being shunned, apostate, um, a lot of different different your words. whole life. I mean, you don't yeah.
1: realize. I mean, I just realized it at 49 that that's what's been driving me. You know, like we. I mean, I've worked with David uh, Nagel for a few years, and you know, we're always talking about the subconscious mind, and you know, what's that? What's that one last little thing that's holding me? Well, it's this fear. So, and, and to put it into perspective, it's not just fear of the un- unforgivable sin. Because we're taught that if we stumble somebody else, we have blood guilt. So we're responsible for their life, right? What is
0: the unforgivable sin? What, what is that?
1: Uh, being apostate, speaking out against God's anointed organization. Mm, okay. Right? Thanks. Yep. That's worse than anything else you could do. Like, if, Even if you killed somebody, but were for repentant, that's still forgivable. But speaking out against his organization is unforgivable. But I mean, that's total mind control, right? Because they don't want control the narrative. They want to control the narrative, um, and so your whole life, you're, you're, you know, you are afraid of being disfellowshipped, of being shunned, of stumbling other people and being responsible. So you know, I mean, one of the things that that is one of the biggest keys to freedom for anybody is losing the fear of what other people think, right? Um, but when you're, and I didn't realize how much that controlled me until I realized. I've grown up being taught that I have to make sure I don't stumble anybody. Like it's just ingrained in the, the subconscious. So it's been it's been my whole life and I don't know that that ever goes away. like you can recognize it consciously, but that zero to seven is a pretty, mega time in your life so even though i can consciously reject a lot of this stuff and you know as we're, we're recording this now and i don't know when people will be listening to it but we're right in the height of all this covid stuff i mean i gotta tell you like a lot of my end of world triggers are triggered <laughs> right and i consciously know it's not the end of the world but that subconscious mind is is a crazy thing right so i i it's just always been there adam
0: always yeah. no thanks for sharing that uh, what what I'm curious is, so you get to, uh, I think you were in your, maybe your 20s, maybe beyond that. Um, where was the shift for you? How did you start to break free from the faith?
1: Um, well, I moved out of home when I was 20. I moved from Montreal to Vancouver. And, you know, I, I lived with a bunch of other Jehovah's Witness girls and, you know, I had roommates and, but I started to be out on my own. And then I eventually lived by myself but for a while there i you know i worked hard to uh become what they call a regular pioneer where you are basically full-time going preaching and working part-time and like living in poverty and that was considered a virtue (laughs) um but i wanted more for myself and i i really didn't like being made to feel wrong that i wanted more right and I hadn't had a relationship, and I was only allowed to date people in the faith, and there was nobody that was really that appealing to me. Like, my husband was not a a Jehovah's Witness, and, you know, I met him, and it was wrong for me to date him, because he wasn't a a witness, and a lot of my friends, actually, most of my friends did not come to my wedding. We had a very small wedding. Um, I didn't my cousin tried to organize a, a bridal shower and one of my Jehovah's witness friends calls her and said don't even bother because nobody's going to come so i mean it was really that was kind of intense um but even then you know my husband we got married and he came along he converted to make me happy although i don't think that he ever fully uh believed it but i still wanted more like i wanted a, a career i wanted to make money and I always found going to all those meetings to be such a burden and I hated the preaching work. Like I hated it. I just did not want to go door to door. It was just, I mean there's other ways to torture myself and that was not my favorite way to do it. Um, and, um, and then I ended up landing a really, really good job. I, um, got a job in the mining industry. I was promoted to an executive level. I was making multi six figures and I was traveling a lot. And I was really hitting the pinnacle of my corporate career. And I had so much pressure that I needed to quit that job. And that's when I really started to just get really pissed off, right? Like, why do I have to quit this job? You know, well, when are you going to get a job and, you know, go work at like a department? Like they, they're thinking I should maybe, you know, have a job where I go work at a department store as a cashier or at clean houses. But how having, are you, having,
0: how are you getting those messages? Are you hearing that from someone? Literally that... every
1: time I would walk into their kingdom hall, it's like, have you quit your job yet? You know, like, like that, Yeah, you know, when are you going to quit that job? And what then, from um, your
0: parents, anything from your parents?
1: No, my my dad my dad was happy that I had a, a good career. My parents were actually quite supportive of, of the career side of things. They weren't the best Jehovah's Witnesses around. <laughs> um, the The pressure really came more from the the society and and the organization. Um, And I also traveled a lot in my role. And one of the things I did is I traveled extensively with different men, so that was quite scandalous. Um, And and the the irony is that my husband didn't want me traveling without these men because he felt safer that I would be if I was going to Chicago or other cities that I had somebody there that he trusted that could physically look after me, right? So um, that was quite a scandal. And I remember I was at, uh, I was at, drugstore one day and I was in line and I was behind one of the elders wives and she said, Oh, I haven't seen you in a while. When are you going to come back to the kingdom hall? And I'm like, Oh God, here we go. Right. And, um, and she just had this scowl on her face and she's like, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I, I, because at that time I was on rotation. So I would work 10 days in Alaska and then I would come home for five or six days and I'd go back to Alaska for 10 days. And I had my own apartment up there during that time and um I just said well no I'm this I said well I this is my work schedule and she's like is your husband does your husband go up there with you and I said well no (laughs) like I've got the work permit and I'm on rotation it's mining and Adam she started screaming at me um and right in the the uh the lineup just screaming that it was shameful and you can't do that and that's not how a christian woman should live her life and you need to never be away from your husband and 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 the venom that was coming from her and and i mean i wasn't into like personal development or owning my stuff or separating her stuff and my stuff at that point I i was still in corporate and i was an accountant but at that point it was the first time in my life where i was actually able to go like wow she's miserable as a in what she's doing because she she doesn't even know me. The amount of venom coming from her was not was not personal. Like it could could not be because she didn't know me. So, I knew that she wasn't happy with herself. But then I just I remember thinking like this is just crap, right? And then, I went to one of their conventions because um, they have these big conventions. I don't know don't know if you've ever seen them. They rent auditoriums and or stadiums and they fill them up, and, or hockey arenas and they bring them from all over and they have a convention and i was at one and i was listening to this um i don't know if he was an elder or just a regular member of the congregation but he was talking about all his blessings from god that he was getting but along the way he just kept talking about every job he was getting fired from and then saying but then but then you know god blessed me and i was sitting there going i can't believe this, right? I can't believe I'm listening to this. And then they had other interviews with um, young women. I was probably about in my 30s at the time. And so these were like 19, 20-year-old women that they were interviewing who were saying how they were doing so well at their job and they were getting these great full-time job offers or scholarship offers. And they they put God first and they went to school. Uh, uh, not to school. They, they said no and they prioritized the, the preaching work so for me that was kind of i think what really just made me go i ugh, this is ridiculous like they're they're stopping personal development and it wasn't even a doctrinal thing it was really feeling like the ability for somebody to make something of themselves was forbidden, and i wanted to make something of myself so that was my start to what i would say fade like i faded out and and then as time went on and we got further and further away from like 1914 i started to think well maybe little misguided and all that. And then it was uh, by accident one day, I landed on a YouTube channel and um, <laughs> I had my eyes open to like, wow, how false a lot of the doctrine was. It was, I, it, I literally sat in a chair for three days. And this was right on my 49th birthday, and I was thinking, okay, well, it's my last year in my 40s, I'm gonna really rock it out. And I accidentally, and nothing's an accident. And I never looked at any of these quote apostate sites. So how I came across that channel, I don't know, was no accident, but I started to watch this stuff, and it was it wasn't, and there's a lot of sensationalized um, stuff out there about Jehovah's Witnesses because people like a scandal. But this particular fellow that I found, um, his name's Lloyd Evans, his channel's called the John Cedars Channel. This guy is studied like he is compassionate he he backs everything up with facts both both from what the jehovah's witnesses have in their own uh materials that their members can't get anymore (laughs) to show some of the things that have changed and historical documents or actual documents from different entities and i sat there for three days like i I got up, I had my coffee, I would watch these videos. I don't think I showered. I sat and I cried and cried because I just like the only way to describe it was kind of like, you know, imagine like a married couple, they go their separate ways because they just don't think they're compatible and then you find out. 10 years later that the spouse actually had a whole other marriage, right? Like the betrayal uh, that it, I felt at that point uh, was really strong. <laughs>
0: from the <laughs> top, where was the betrayal the most from just the whole structure and the narrative, how it was controlled? I don't want to. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, I don't blame my mom or I don't blame mm. the elders and the congregations that I was in that. Cause that's the structure they were under. Right. It was just like this, this had been a religion that, got started by a man in America. And it started didn't so much start as a a religion as it started as a a publishing company. And it's just grown into this thing. And they have the level of mind gymnastics, the false doctrine, the uh, things they've swept under the rug, the way they treated people um, just really Do you think
0: what they thought they were doing was right?
1: Yes. Um, But at the same time, it's it's just, it's all about control. Like when I read that book, Crisis of Conscience, and I saw, like, got the peek into some of the conversations, you know, I mean, the, the level that they wanted to control people to, um, You know, back in they, they, there was a thing about um, just even, even. How can I put this? Um, They were policing what happened in people's bedrooms. That there was the right way and a wrong way to have sex. Like, I mean, and these were married couples that they would they went on witch hunts for to find out if they were doing things like putting their nose where it didn't belong. Right.
0: What What are some of the wrong ways or the right ways?
1: Well, basically anything that w- would have been oral sex was considered unclean and they were they were finding people for it right like look i mean it, it was and i remember that way back when um so that, that that it was considered wrong now it's just considered unclean but if when you read the the crisis of conscience book they were looking for people for that to to disfellowship them for things that were going on in their own their own the privacy of their own bedroom a husband and wife right? So, um, Everything was controlled. Like we weren't allowed to vote. I voted for the first time last year at 49.
0: <laughs> really?
1: Really. We were not allowed to vote.
0: Because um, what's the, what's the basis under that? Like the.
1: Our vote is for God's kingdom, not for man-made kingdoms. So yeah, there was no voting. Um, also they're very famous for not allowing blood transfusions and, um, amount of people that have died from refusing blood transfusions right and i never questioned that i just thought it was the right thing and and you know when you actually start researching even their own logic is circular and makes no sense on the blood transfusion issues so but they can't go back on it now right because (laughs) i imagine that would
0: be a lot of lawsuits (laughs) so they they what's interesting is uh Someone may listen to this and be like, well, why didn't you just leave earlier? You know, it might be easy for someone to hear what you're saying now. and am like, well, why didn't you just leave? Can you talk about why it's inc- beyond difficult to, to, to do that?
1: Well, there's two for me, there's two aspects. One, I was raised in it, and so um, that's all I knew, right? That's yeah. all I knew. And then there's the, the social structure of it because those were also all the friends that I knew. Right. This was my whole social network. And there's also the fear of like, because you believe it's true. You believe God's going to come down and end this world anytime soon. Right. You know, a loving God's going to kill seven billion people, apparently. Um, And you don't want to be one of them. So there's there's all of that. And then and then when you do leave. The shunning is is real. Um, I mean, my family would never have shunned me. My brother probably would. and if people hear this podcast a lot of things could change for me I, my life has changed to the point that it doesn't matter because i don't have any friends really left in, in the organization um, but it's really hard because it's all people know it's their social network it's um and, and you know culture and and your tribe are huge for people right like we're we're social beings so that's the hardest part of it and they they threaten you that they're going to take all of that away now here's the thing um you know and i know because we've worked in the personal development world that if we want to expand ourselves and we want to grow we need to put ourselves around people that have the same mindset same goals that will hold us to a higher standard that don't want to hold us back so there's a natural separation from a lot of people anyway that don't have goals <laughs> right that don't view things the the, the way we were we're the way we do or where we want to go there that is going to happen naturally if they're going to hold us back from being our best selves but there's a difference between a natural you know breaking away and outgrowing a relationship to people just like cutting you off and treating you like you're dead because I mean, you do core think fear the they do right, right? Yeah. and like you know walking down the street and turning the other way and going the other way and parents do that to children like my family wouldn't have done that um like I said, my brother probably would, but um, my my mom, when she was alive, wouldn't have done that, and my my dad kind of faded away, so he wouldn't either. But that is a reality that a lot of families have been broken up, um, where parents do not speak to their children at all, or children won't speak to their parents, and it's it's awful.
0: And what if and the more wrapped you are into your social structure, and everyone believes that, and you go against that, then you're abandoned from everybody
1: yeah and and here's the thing if if like a parent decides to still continue uh, associating with let's say a, a, what they call a disfellowship child, then that parent risks being called up for the unforgivable sin of apostasy, and uh, they could be booted out, so it's um yeah it's it's pretty intense that thing,
0: you know. It's funny. um, I I heard you on Shustin Ian's podcast, Excellence, and it was so, so fantastic and so vulnerable and so open and and you're doing that again. And I appreciate this so much. I didn't realize how new this was for you. When I heard you on that, I thought this has been going, like you had been kind of segueing out of this for for many, many, many years. Um, And now I'm realizing that you're still learning it's still a process it's very much
1: well i mean i i I kind of faded out oh 13 or 14 years ago so like in terms of being an active jehovah's witness that stopped a long time ago and yet there was still that part of me that always associated myself as a former jehovah's witness or an active jehovah's witness and that kind of gradually faded away to be like no i'm just me but it wasn't until i came across that youtube channel in in uh, September September third, my birthday um that I actually woke up to a lot of oh, this is what's in my subconscious mind, <laughs> okay, now I understand certain things a lot better so there there's definitely things that I have to work through on that It's just it's just what's there, yeah
0: you know there there was a'm uh, sh- uh, shifting a little bit um, something that you shared on their podcast, I thought that was very interesting. It was almost like a transformational experience. You went to your mentor, you thought you were gonna go learn about sales funnels. Basically. And and then they're asking everyone to share their sexual fantasy with the group. With a group of strangers, right? Yes. So there's two things I'm curious about. One, if you could just paint that picture. And secondly, I I for the life of me, when I heard you say that, I was like, how did this woman get up and share? how, so the two things I like, one, can you share that experience, what it was like for you? And two, what got you up in the moment to share your sexual fantasy? Um, so can you, I'm stacking a little bit here.
1: So, okay. So, I mean, that was just like the most horrifying (laughs) experience of my life to date. Right. Like I had no idea. Like, so the, the way that program had run is like, um, when you first come into the program you the first day you go there there's a video and you know it's 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 just general stuff that about the universal laws and it was really exciting stuff and and you know we were learning a lot of uh, laws and principles of success. So I was like, so hyped, right? Like, this is so cool. I can't wait. And then, and then and you
0: were going to grow your business, right? Like, a, like a growth growth, right? Yeah, growth yeah, exactly.
1: I mean, I, I say tongue in cheek when I say sales funnels. Like, I mean, this was a mindset. It was a mindset program. Right. But, but, you know, when you think about growing your business, you're thinking about sales funnels. So then the next day it's like, okay, so now we've had the the pre work so now is the live sessions, which universal law are we gonna tap into and it was the law of gender with the with the um sub law of the law of sexual transmutation of energy and i and I still didn't quite get it and so and then when um we were told like you know we need to break through a lot of our own barriers and the things that hold us back right because really you know the most personal things you can talk to someone about is sex money and what they really want so the sales process is just as intimate. So if you can break through this, then you can break through, you know, anything. And so we had to write out our sexual fantasies and then get up and read them. And I was like, "What did I just sign up for?" <laughs> right? Like I just about, I, 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 I felt sick. I felt triggered. I wanted to run out of the room. I wanted to cry. And I, I just, I didn't know what to do. And, and you know, as I shared on shassanian's podcast i was like sexual fantasy what's that right because you know i had grown up my whole life just viewing sex as somewhat utilitarian or something you don't talk about or just because that was really how i'd I'd grown up and so i didn't have one like that i could even think about at that point and so I thought to myself, and I was sitting there, and I'm thinking, well, you know i I, I don't know what to do. i'm I'm uncomfortable. I'm feeling really embarrassed here. Um, but I can write one like I, I I mean i'm I'm a great writer. I can write anything right? like that that would not have been a problem for me to fake that. <laughs> like so I know that sounds crazy, but I totally could have faked that, and got up there, dealt with my embarrassment, you know, because everybody else was reading stuff, right. Would not have been a problem and nobody would have known the wiser. But I, but because I, I literally had drawn a blank, I'm like, you know what? I'm here for, I'm here for a breakthrough. So I'm going to just tell them the truth.
0: And you called a lifeline, didn't you? Didn't you make a phone call? No. Oh, you didn't call your husband? I thought you, I thought you spoke. Maybe oh, no. I texted him
1: and said that I mean, he goes, it. oh, I like this guy. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> So, I remember I waited till everybody was done, and I was the last one and um like we didn't have to to do anything so i could so i had these are the choices I had. I could have just sat there quietly and opted out. nobody would have known I could have made something up or i before I could have bolted <laughs> or I could have told them the truth, and so I waited till the end, and then I just said like this was really hard for me, and uh you know i don't I don't have one right and and I think the you could have heard a pin drop in the room more than any fantasy that anybody else would have read that had everybody be like what (laughs) so um yeah that was pretty intense um and you know it it really just all came down to it was deeper than than the whole sex thing it just really came down to the fact that throughout my entire life expression has been stifled and having expression and having opinion and feeling like i can um ask questions or, or or have my own desires met in any form was wrong right so um it was and that was just a symbol of everything and so that was the start of cracking it open to realize that oh um you know a lot of the stuff that i've been um, like i've done well like i've done well for myself in spite of myself but i still kept having these stumbling blocks so this is a lot of what's brought that on and it, it just started to crack it open. I didn't realize at the time that um, it, it was a cult or that I had uh, like a lot of the false stuff that I've been taught. I didn't know any of that. I still thought they were misguided, but that was the start of of a an awakening and not like in every aspect of life that you could imagine.
0: Wow. I mean, yeah. the amount of courage that must have taken at that point. Uh, oh, I was bawling is,
1: when I said it because I was—I—I uh, I, I, I don't know if I was humiliated, anxious, or just had so much emotion, and it was fear. Like, but it, I just said what I had to say. Well, and what uh, came after yeah. that?
0: What was the feeling that came after that? Do you remember what happened after that? Oh, you finally do the thing that w- maybe is the scariest moment of your life. What was it like right after that?
1: It was actually pretty fine. Like, it was just oh. like it—it was—it was. It was Afterwards was a lot better than before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Because I mean, I really worked myself up uh, yeah. for this. So yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's 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 amazing. No vulnerability hanging over. Actually, I thought it was going to be like this massive release. Like, oh, I'm still here. I'm alive. Um, people gave you feedback that was, you know, maybe positive.
1: It was just very. Um, I like. I don't know. I it was a few years ago, and I. I just kind of went to a place of peace because it was like, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the anticipation of anything is usually a lot worse than what it actually is. Right. So,
0: you know, what's amazing. I'm looking over your shoulder and I I see this, this, these words, inspiration, create beauty and dream. And I think what's so interesting is you, you are, it sounds like living out your dream, your work, you're a master coach. You work with geldings, um, to help people uncover their limiting beliefs now. Um, which I think is just so amazing. And I would love if you could share like what that's like, and maybe, a, a like this story or a wow moment that you've experienced in this, that's really helped someone, uh, in their life.
1: Well, I, I think, you know, all of us have our own, like our own path and our own spirituality. And I, um, for me, the horses are the spiritual path and, there's two aspects to it. There's the real spiritual side. There's my my best friend who's Bulgarian. She calls it uhu Boohoo, and I, we, that's our joke. It's the uhu buhu side of things. And um, there's the scientific side of it because horses are definitely prey animals, and they're energetic beings. Like they need to know if um, a bear or a lion or whatever or a wolf walks by, whether they're full or hungry, right? To whether they're going to run for their life or stay there. So they're very in tune to our energy and what we put out there and how we communicate. And so they've, it it was a long journey with the horses because there's the the horsemanship aspect of it where I had to overcome a lot of fears just in terms of, can I do this? The physical fears, you know, um, not understanding that, because in horsemanship, you know, they talk about showing the horse who's boss or getting control of the situation there's no control with a 1,200-pound animal. You don't have control. <laughs> um, and I kind of always went against the grain on that in horsemanship, and I really went to natural and relationship-based horsemanship, where I decided that I didn't want to control the horse. I wanted to have a partnership with the horse. And it was a whole different approach to how I did things and to give the horse a voice. And, you know, and when I look at my own horse, how we've, look, like, I didn't see it at the time, but when you look back, His journey is mirrored with mine. He was always had to be a lesson horse or a jumping horse, and he had to behave a certain way. He lived at a uh, a high activity barn where he was in a stall probably like 16 hours a day, sometimes 18 hours a day, and sometimes he didn't get out at all of his stall, Um, very cooped up. And he was a quote a problem horse. And now you know we've been together 10 years, or 11 years. Um, He's lived with me for two, and he's probably one of the most gentle horses you'll ever meet because I've really favored relationship allowing him to express himself allowing him to have an opinion allowing um, him to have choice and that's changed him and so when i saw how the horse transformed to help me to transform now in wow. terms of the coaching um yeah. horses need to feel safe they need to feel physically safe they need to feel emotionally safe they need to feel energetically safe and so when we're working with people you know we We can very easily put on a big face or or a brave face or think we have it all together. But if we're in our head and we're not really congruent emotionally, so if our insides don't match our outsides, horses don't feel safe because now they don't know what, what your problem is. They don't care if you're upset as long as you're honest about it. But if you're trying to hide it, they don't feel comfortable. And sometimes the work I do with clients, it varies. I mean, sometimes we have active work with them. Sometimes we have reflective work and sometimes I just hold the coaching session in front of the horse. Um, because how the horse reads the client allows me to go deeper with questions because if, if the horse is licking and chewing and relaxed, you know, the client is fully in their flow at that moment and the horse feels safe. If the horse is walking away or tense, then you know that they're not feeling safe. So there's something going on with that client. So you can, it gives you a good lead to ask more questions and fears, like whatever you're afraid of, uh, it's going to come up. Um, And it's funny because even people who are, quote, horse people, when you step out of the role and I'm speaking to my horse people right now, what's different about the equine assisted coaching is you are not leading or training that horse in anything you're letting the horse lead you. And that's a big mind flip for horse people. and for people who aren't horse people it's it's a, it's an incredibly powerful experience as well because all those fears that you have your brain doesn't know like that reptilian brain of yours if you're terrified of sales calls um it doesn't know the difference between being with a 1200 pound animal or picking up that phone whatever that fear is is just going to pop up right in one way or another so um I had one example with one client, and this was really powerful, where she wanted to work on raising her prices, and um, she was feeling like she needed to attract a different level of client, so she wanted to go work with the biggest horse we have here, and because she felt a little intimidated, but he was beautiful, and she thought, well, if we could do this in front of him, it would have some symbolic meaning um, to her. And there was something that she had been, you know, dealing with for a while and i and i had noticed it in her and i'd never brought it up or or called her out on it um just because it wasn't appropriate and it wasn't something she'd asked to be coached on right so um it was just an observation and so as a coach i want to be careful right like okay i'm observing something versus what the client brings to to the call so in this aspect i brought her in into the arena and generally the horses are at liberty um this one wasn't i had him on a on a halter he is also handicapped he has a, a neurological disease called shivers and so that makes him wobble and it can look a little bit like he's about to take off and run but he's just trying to stand still and he's also very 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 friendly and curious so he has no concept of personal space or boundaries not at all right he's just very, very friendly horse and so I, I brought her in there, but because he's, he can be a little skittish, I kept him on a, on the lead line. And as soon as he put his face into her, now she was totally fine with him over the gate, but inside the, uh, the arena, she started to get really nervous. And then when he wobbled his back legs, she had a complete panic attack. She took me, she threw me in front of the horse and said, I have to get out of here. So like, we, you know, you call a timeout at that, right? Because the client is having a severe panic attack so let the horse go took her out uh, calmed her down and you know and then i said to her and i said okay we'll, we'll just pull the, the shade down here um i said i i just want you to know like you don't have to go back in there but i want you to know that you are absolutely safe um i'm not judging you for your reaction i just want you to know that i will never put you in a situation where you're in danger if that horse was going to do anything dangerous i would have had you out of there so just want you to feel confident that I I have your safety, first and foremost, and you don't have to be in there if you don't, you know, either, right? But I just want you to know where I'm coming from. And she said, oh, I absolutely know that you would never put me in a situation uh, that was dangerous. I I trust you. She goes, but I don't think you were reading that horse correctly. And this is somebody who has no experience with horses at all, right? None. (laughs) And... I looked at her and I said, "Okay, so what you're saying is, you trust me, but you don't trust my judgment about the horse. She's like, exactly. And this was something that had been holding her back about someone else. And it wasn't about a horse's judgment she didn't trust. It was something else. And I said, all I said is, where else is this showing up for you with your mentors? And she just looked at me and her face like dropped and she's like, Oh my God. And and we, we ended up spending 45 minutes on something that she didn't come to be coached on, but was actually her stumbling block. And it came up with the horse because it triggered that lack of trust. Right. And lack of trust was the issue. And, and that wasn't even the exercise. And it, and, and it was like 40 seconds, not even with that horse where that came out.
0: Yeah. It wasn't even necessarily the horse using its, Intuition or the channeling abilities and reading the energy—it was the person that reacted to the proximity of the horse in this case that brought up something so so powerful and meaningful. Wow!
1: And so uh, you see that happen all the time, all the time. Um, and so it's just it's it's really powerful work. And there's always stuff to be learned, whether from observing them um, in their natural habitat or it's i have some articles on on my blog and i do have some on linkedin as well about how horses actually and it's been proven through the HeartMath institute they've done studies on this where um horses like they have a huge heart field um that magnetic heart field and so they they were wanting to test if as humans we could affect the heart rate variability of horses and so they would have humans and horses put together in a in a paddock they would do the heart lock the way Uh, the HeartMath Institute teaches it, And what they found was the human did not affect the horse's heart rate. The horse affected the human's heart rate. Yeah. And it's, it's a pretty cool, again, it's one of those things where to people who aren't into it, it's a very dry presentation, but I geeked out on it totally. Um,
0: that just says how much more you could feel safe about it because you're not going to, you know, you're, you're not going to affect the horse necessarily from your, from your energy. No. But they're reflected back to you, am I saying that right?
1: Well, they will reflect your energy back to you. Um, so that's why if you're not if you're in your head or you're not fully congruent in emotion, they'll stay away. But but when you get to that spot where you're fully congruent, you are in a in a heart lock with them. And what's really cool though is if when when they are in that state of rest and relax, they're in their parasympathetic they've activated their parasympathetic nervous system and horses have to do that. They have to preserve energy because when that tiger comes, they need to trigger the fight or flight and go and have the energy to do that. And the minute they're out of danger, they go back to relax, right? They don't, they don't sit and wonder like, Whoa, that was close and sit and, you know, panic about it all day. They're back to relaxation. And so when that heart lock happens, and they affect your heart rate you go into your parasympathetic state like they co-regulate each other as a herd and they can co-regulate us so as entrepreneurs as people as people trying to do our best work a lot of times we're in our head with all these ideas and we don't get to relax enough to the level we need to relax for our true creativity and our true desires to come to the surface and so um one of the things i love to do and i'll i'll usually do it with my pony just because people feel a lot safer with with the pony is i i pop them into the the back paddock and i just have them sit down on a chair and it can take a while for them to get to that state and if they're not in that that relaxed state the pony just he won't come anywhere near them he's very he's very energy sensitive but once they get into that state where they are so relaxed and i can tell cuz now the, the pony will come over but they're they're not even aware that the pony's there they're that relaxed and they'll be making notes and they'll come up and and they'll have all these ideas for their business or what they want to do with their life or a program they want to create or an idea for uh, something they want to do that they're like, I, I don't know where that came from, but, <laughs> but it feels right. It was always there, but they've never been that relaxed. And so that's one of the the big aspects. So, you know, um, right now because of we're in COVID, some of the, the work that we do is kind of hard because I can't actually safely stay six feet away from somebody um that's loose with a horse in a paddock because you know <laughs> sometimes you know they're horses right you want you want to be there just in case but we can still create that same effect even over the fence and if somebody you know just wants to come and hang out and have the horse in the paddock and and relax they can really just and get into sync with that horse they the amount of relaxation you can have t- just from that and you can't even begin to like the people underestimate i guess that's the thing the power of just sitting with a horse doing nothing there's a lot of activities that we do um because you know as humans we feel like we need to be doing something all the time right um and a lot of breakthroughs can happen and yet the biggest ones happen when we do nothing and yet and and, and that's the thing I, you know i tell people like don't think that nothing's happening because something is one of my favorite things like when i'm stuck is i just i'll go with my big horse and i'll just go pull up a chair or i sit on the ground i will not have clients sit on the ground <laughs> that's a big no-no but i but i do it because it's my horse and i just plop myself down and you know ideas just flow and i don't do anything i just sit there and um it's it's very powerful and it's a very simple thing very simple yeah. thing
0: uh, so beautiful yeah i mean the uh, you know the ability to uh be with this, this magnificent being to quiet yourself, get, get yourself in parasympathetic state. And you said that that's what horses do naturally. They, they, they spend most of their time in parasympathetic state. And I said, wow, that's something like really to aspire to, you know, we spend so much time in our minds and the, like you said, the doing it's just, and then what are we not having access to in that way? Uh, the creativity, like you said, right? Peace. Well, and
1: I, and I think when, you know, once we get past COVID, um, and, you know, herd immunity or vaccine or treatment, and people can start to get back to semblance of, of life. Um, I think horses are going to be really powerful. Like part of what I feel like my purpose is, is, is you know, because my horse and I have walked a very similar path of, of freedom of, ex- of restriction of expression and trying to fit a mold and breaking free. Um, we've done it together. Um, and. This isn't the place for it, but, um, you know, I have a very different approach to horsemanship than a lot of people and horses have been treated throughout history as tools. I mean, for the most part, if you look at it, they're treated like tools and they're they're trained with heavy tack like chains and whips and bits and you know the horse isn't behaving put a bigger bit in his mouth right instead of getting to the root of what actually works for that horse and adam some horses don't want to be ridden and that should be okay right um but people have an idea and agenda for them and so my approach and what i've always felt is through my work is i want to help to raise consciousness on the planet through the transformational work i do through horses and also be that voice for the horse and as I look around what's going in the world right now and I think like you know the amount of trauma people are going through right now with having their social life cut off or having you know just washing groceries I mean like what does that do to somebody right when you don't feel like your food is safe the 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 discussions which I won't go into here but that are happening on on social media that can take from a, a an issue that needs debate and and resolution is not being handled with love it's being handled with just you're wrong you think this you're wrong right and 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 disdain and a colleague of mine the other day um posted an article about nonviolent communication which is what we do as coaches right somebody comes up with something we go and ask a question we don't tackle their belief we ask a question right and it was a really good article about nonviolent communication and i thought how much this mirrors my work with horses, right? Because putting a chain on their nose is violent communication versus teaching them to want to do something with a cookie is nonviolent communication, right? Um and so I thought there's a great opportunity for people to learn from horses on, you know, how do you have two different opinions? How do you feel safe? How do you feel safe emotionally and physically when you have a different um a difference of opinion. And so I'm really hoping that that horses are able to help with our healing. Planet wise, and I think they will. I really believe they will. Um, because they they just provide so much. And and when and again, there's a lot of activities we can do that are so, so, so powerful and that give you a lot of aha's. However, if you allow yourself to go into that parasympathetic state of just pure rest and relaxation that a horse can bring out, so much truth and peace and love can come up for a person. And and I believe that when us as individuals fully realize what we're here to do and we fully step into that purpose and we fulfill that purpose we don't have to like some people's purposes are bigger some are smaller some are on a global messaging and some are just to you know fix things in their own backyard right but when each and every one of us is fully in our purpose that's when the world gets to be a a much Better place and more harmonious because we are all doing what we're here to do, and that contributes to to the good of the planet. And and horses can help you find that.
0: I think what's so amazing when you were just sharing that, this could be a good place to to wrap it up, is just how you are taking your experiences with your entire life and all the the emotions, this this emotion and just how much congruency it's bringing to what it is at your work, your values, um, what you want to, how you want to impact the world, how you want to, its just, it's just amazing to hear you share that, um, and to hear the passion and the meaning that you put behind it. Like I could feel it being on this end, um, and it comes through and it's really going to inspire, or it's going to touch and, and help a lot of people can really, that kind of energy can really, you know, be, be freeing for a lot of people, help people just specifically what you say, express themselves. I mean, who doesn't want to express themselves freely? You've gone through that on a different level. And now you're able to, with however, whatever means you, you feel that's good in your toolbox to be able to help people do that. So thank you for sharing that. Where, where could people find you, Nafisa? Well, you're amazing. They
1: can find me uh, on Facebook, but um, I, I have two websites. One's NafisaSharine.com and the other is believeincranch.com. Um The ranch is just more about the horses and Nafisa Sharin's about me. So <laughs> um, yeah, those are the two places they could find me.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. I've really appreciated this. This has been, this kind of took some turns that, that I wasn't necessarily expecting and I think that was that was great and uh, I, I just appreciate you coming on and just being open and honest and just sharing what's inside of you. It's, it's a gift. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Talk soon. Talk soon. Hey everyone. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please visit me at www.adamesco.com.